Escape Project Podcast. My name is Ed Ng. So this is going to be one of those podcasts where I'm going to show my cards a little bit. By that I mean I've recorded a bunch of things so far that are working off of a series of assumptions. And these assumptions were formed partly because of my personal background, which then informed my academic work. And these assumptions are the kind of thing that help form the basis of how I approach my work as a psychologist, along with how I understand people as a whole. In many ways, this podcast and the Eastgate Project in general was intended to speak to certain people groups. I hope not everyone who listens to this podcast identifies as a Christian, because I don't mean for it to be that way. But I know that the vast majority of people who are listening to this are a lot like me. Asian, Christian, and North American. So this episode today is meant to be an open letter of sorts for people who I consider to be my people. About five years ago, I wrote something on my former blog that seemed to catch the attention of a number of people. Admittedly, as I'm a small-time unknown kind of person, it didn't go too far in circulation, and no, I didn't nab a book deal or speaking engagements out of it. But the premise of that article was that I was bringing charges against the people from which I come. And these people, for lack of a better word, I would describe as Chinese-Canadian Christians. The charges were that we were selfish, self-absorbed, too easily pleased with bread and games, too obsessed with comfort and security, and did not live with any vision for ourselves other than to achieve what we think of as peace. But comfort at the expense of speaking about injustice and working for it. Wealth, at the expense of finding meaning in what we do. Playing the face game that our parents played, while supposedly knowing better. But that blog post seemed to strike a nerve in a lot of people. I think this is because the frustrations I was giving vent to were things that others were feeling, but maybe just didn't, or couldn't, say out loud. And as I have said over and over again, whenever we find ourselves feeling angry about something, perhaps we need to then locate what vulnerability or tenderness we're protecting. It's my contention that the thing many of us children of Asian immigrants have wanted to say is that the vision of life that has been handed down to us is deeply problematic. But saying so to the people who have done so much for you, your family, your ancestors, your community, is considered disrespectful to the extreme and embarrassing for you and your clan in particular. But here I am saying it again. We are a subculture that continually fails to produce people of conviction because of the divide between pursuit of material wealth and the belief that one's faith is all just a matter of cognitive and emotional belief, not of life itself. A lot of people assume I'm just an angry person who is bitter at people who have managed to become wealthy. And sure, maybe that applies to a part of me. But if I'm self-analytical about it, why am I so angry about the decadence of my people? Well, as I keep saying, anger is often a defensive reaction against someone touching something that is painful within you. And if I am pained in some way by the lives of others around me, then yeah, there is merit to the idea that I very often feel left behind or inferior to those with nicer cars, 
or nicer houses, and maybe even retirement plans all figured out. But along with that tender spot in me is hope. As the saying goes, inside every cynic is a disappointed idealist. And if I'm cynical about Chinese-Canadian Christians, it's because I'd hoped for something more. But over time, I think I've increasingly seen something else. So what am I talking about with respect to Chinese-Canadian Christians? And here, maybe it's helpful for me just to say Asian-Canadian Christians as shorthand for a lot of the commonalities we have. And yes, by definition, I am still one of those. So what is this Asian-Canadian Christian cultural narrative that we're supposed to approximate? The life that is often held up for those of us who were born in North America or immigrated here at an early age roughly follows what many immigrant families hoped for when they arrived. Now it's worth mentioning my perception that most, if not all, immigrants come to North America looking for a better life than what they had in their countries of origin. Why would you want to move away from a place where you can speak your native language, be surrounded by family and friends, and, and live in peace and prosperity? Of course, if you had these things in your home country, you likely wouldn't think of venturing to a place called Canada. People generally move to a new country because they hope for better. So the reasons for why our families came here are as important as the lives we've established once we've arrived. The big ones like war or famine or economic destitution are obvious. A lot of people come to Canada because we're generally seen as a welcoming, peaceful, and prosperous country. But along with these are cultural pressures and home countries that many people feel are unjust or unsustainable and that they want to escape for the sake of their families. For example, the educational systems in places like Hong Kong or Singapore and Korea are renowned for being absolutely brutal in a Darwinian way where kids who don't immediately display academic ability are streamed into lower ability classes or schools. And the eventual outcome may just be lower income jobs and socioeconomic status. A lot of families who aren't coming from unstable sociopolitical situations come to Canada because, well, schools here are seen as easier and more forgiving. In addition, when you factor in things like cheaper post-secondary education, socialized health care, and a national pension plan, this is a pretty attractive place to be. The implicit message in the immigrant narrative is that we came here for stability, and maybe to get a leg up in life. And it has to be said, one way to achieve that stability is to make as much money as you can. As a friend of mine once said, money can't buy happiness, but it sure helps. And then another way to get the security you want is to get a job that you can't be fired from and will always be essential to the functioning of that society. So many children of immigrants find themselves pushed towards high-paying professions like medicine or law because these fulfill a lot of the hopes of immigrant families for security above all else. Now, none of this is necessarily unique to Asian immigrants. But as immigrants to Canada, a country with white supremacist instincts, we aren't reflexively welcomed as one of us. This was not only true of when my parents came to Canada in the early 1960s, it is still true of 2021. It's easy to be fooled, given that many of the newest wave of Asian immigrants seem to have an upper hand when it comes to wealth. But this is only maybe true of places like Richmond or Markham. Step outside these Asian-heavy enclaves, and you're likely to find less welcome or acceptance of non-Euro-Canadian ways. 
So what did my parents and many others do when they came to Canada? They sought out communities where they could speak their language and talk about where they came from without fear of discrimination. In my parents' case, this was the church. And though I'd love to tell you that the white folk in Winnipeg loved them into their homes and lives, the reality is that they and a bunch of other immigrants from Hong Kong who came to Winnipeg in the 60s felt compelled to form their own predominantly Chinese church. This was a response to the racism they felt from good old church-going prairie folks who smiled on Sunday morning and extended that hand of fellowship, but still lived in the assumption that white Canadian norms were the ultimate expression of following Jesus. So when we talk about Asian-Canadian enclaves and Christian enclaves on top of that, we need to acknowledge that their formation was in part due to a desire to speak a familiar language and move like a fish in water in a familiar cultural worldview. There is an internal pull that all human beings feel to associate with people of like appearance and behavior. However, the external pressure that leads to the formation of ghettos is fear of unlike others, what we also call racism. A couple of things happened on the way to producing the generation to which I belong. First, the immigrant mentality of seeking security and stability above all else was cemented as our parents circulated amongst themselves and marinated in each other's comparison games. And second, the hierarchicalism inherent in some interpretations of Confucianism led to many of us taking up the assumptions of our elders without question. Yes, you heard that right. There are other ways of interpreting Confucius' teachings. I'm not an expert in this, but when I learned that his teachings and influence weren't necessarily monolithic, but that there were different ways of looking at what he said, it opened up quite a bit of insight for me. This includes the thought that maybe unquestioning obedience to our elders who sometimes lord their position over us isn't quite what he meant. Instead, there's space in Confucius for advising our elders in a respectful way. But if we take Confucianism as it's popularly transmitted in terms of loyalty to family, especially parents, and hierarchy, it's worth thinking through how this became a characteristic that is common in most, if not all, Asian people. It's this latter formational process that I'd like you to consider now. Is there something deep inside of us Asian people that we look at our family affiliations in a markedly different way from white people? Well, probably. If you consider that a Confucian view of relationships as ordered in a particular direction is particularly prominent in East Asian cultures, it's worth wondering how thousands of years of reinforcement have led to the formation of bedrock psychological principles. Psychology as a whole tends not to want to think too much about culture as a formative influence as it can lead to blindly stereotyping people. But it's worth thinking about how long histories of certain values being taught and reinforced over and over again might have led to psychological values like interdependence instead of individualism. Now, being North Americans, my guess is the deference to authority and eldership isn't as strong as it might have been a century ago in China. But when our parents came here, they brought with them the expectations of what a right relationship looks like. And those messages are hard to break. And if you don't play that game, you very quickly get labeled as disrespectful and not a worthy part of the community, possibly including your own family. 
Now, when you add in ideas of the American or Canadian dream, where everyone gets what they deserve by means of diligence and effort, you start creating the conditions for a cultural narrative that is unique and specific to Canadian-born Asians. So, what are the narrative elements of this Asian-Canadian Christian life? First, that hard work will get you anywhere. This is not unique to Asians, but traditionally, the oft-repeated emphasis in school and work is less on creativity and innovation, and much more on putting the hours in. Put your head down, don't complain, and work hard. Second, that security and safety are established by means of acquiring wealth. The more money, the more land, and the more expensive things you have, the better indicator this is that you are winning at life. As the saying goes, he who dies with the most toys wins. Now, not, not all Asians flaunt their wealth to others, and for those who take pains not to show how rich they are, there may still be scorekeeping in the form of vacations, expensive educations for kids, or the hope of early retirement with good pensions or investments. Third, certain professions are better guarantors of the desired safety and security. The joke that many of us tell is that all of our parents wanted us to go into medicine, law, engineering, or go to business school, this last one being less about certainty and more about being able to make money, which again is a symbol of power to determine your future and therefore get you some certainty. Fourth, that because these professions are accessible only by advanced education, education is important. This in itself is blended from the carryover from hundreds of years of Chinese families attaining aristocratic status by means of excelling in imperial exams and becoming courtiers. Now, if that seems too speculative, I mean this in the same way that centuries of practicing one thing in a certain direction is perhaps the ultimate form of reinforcing behavior. So it's key here to see that in Asian reckonings, education isn't necessarily an end in itself. You don't go to school to have your mind sharpened or your horizons expanded. It's a means to an end, and that end is security and prosperity. Fifth, that Canada is somewhat helpful in getting you there, but that you need to find your own way through self-employment or by establishing your own companies and organizations. This is because, as a white supremacist society, white people will be looked to for leadership instead of non-whites. So instead of trying to make it in a white man's world, you either settle for something in the middle that won't cause conflict, or you go it on your own. But even more, as Canada is not afraid of the word socialist and has the pronounced ethic of heavily subsidized health care and education, it's worth wondering how this attracts those who are tired of striving for themselves and want to take their foot off the gas. It isn't as though immigrants don't work hard. They do. But perhaps as the generations progress and people feel more at home here, there is less to remind them of the struggle from which their families came. And if so, it wouldn't surprise me if the edge that our parents came with somehow becomes dulled by the comfort of living in a rich, industrialized country that esteems Asians as a model minority. We're quiet, hardworking, successful, just the kind of almost but not quite white people we want to let in here. And because there is a social safety net, it wouldn't be too much to believe that we, in time, become lotus eaters, falling over ourselves in slumber as we eat from the tree of forgetfulness.
Sixth, some of the organizations that you will establish will be religious, like churches. Enter Christian teachings about living a quiet life and heretical statements like God helps those who help themselves, and you start creating the conditions for what ultimately amounts to a quietly self-serving people group. At the outset, the formation of these communities isn't a terrible thing. You band together to build something where you share resources and recount the precious aspects of your particular culture. But over time, a community can become a ghetto if it sinks into itself and is concerned only with its own survival. Seventh, once you have your position and money, your task is to keep it. The point of keeping it is so that the foothold your parents wanted you to have is secured not only for you and your children, but also possibly for your parents themselves. One rather unique aspect of Asian family life is that it's not unusual for three or more generations to live together under the same roof. Now, it's not as though all of our parents have told us they expect us to care of them in their old age, but many of my peers live with the assumption that they will one way or another end up caring for their parents near the end of their lives. Now, if these elements are broken down too far to have made a coherent narrative for you, I invite you to ask yourself what vision of life you have for yourself. And then maybe ask yourself whether what you hope to have happen in your life, or even the way you are living now, matches at least a few of these narrative elements. And if so, then it may be that you are unconsciously adhering to someone else's idea of what your life is for. Not that there's anything wrong with this. Indeed, all of us tend to imitate one cultural norm or another. My task here isn't to just throw ourselves under the bus for doing it. My hope is that by making plain the underlying story that others are telling of your life, you learn to live mindfully and deliberately. That means, in other words, maybe you can lead a transformed life by means of the renewal of your mind. Though a lot of psychologists would say insight isn't worth all that much, for those of you who are listening and hoping for some, insight into what is going on inside of us and around us can help us start to make better choices about the way we live with each other. And if I can speak Christianese for just a moment, this allows you to thoughtfully, carefully follow Jesus instead of mindlessly, brainlessly allowing churches and pastors with suspect teaching to do it for you. Now you may be thinking, well, he's a bit harsh on pastors and churches. But as I've said elsewhere, I'm hard on the people I belong to and identify with because we've been content to go along with a cultural narrative only to find that the cultural narrative breeds shallow people with shallow lives. And it is people with shallow roots who allow themselves to be bent to a cult of personality. So when you ask why the state of the church and its people concerns me so much, it's because polls show that an overwhelming majority of Christians have allowed themselves to be deceived in devoting demagogues into political power. Why? Because they haven't exerted themselves and examined the teachings of their families or the leaders. Of course, the alternative is uncomfortable. You're going against the flow. It's tiring. It's expensive. But if you care about living a meaningful life, you need to live with your head up out of the flow to see where that might be carrying you. Otherwise, you will end up having that flow define meaning for you. 
Some of you may be thinking, there's nothing wrong with going with the flow. And yeah, maybe there isn't if you think about the Asian Canadian Christian narrative. You get respect, if not prestige. You get money, and therefore power. You get companions like family. You get entertained by all the things you can buy or consume. And you get comfort all along the way, never knowing a moment's doubt about what your life is for because you've ticked all the boxes for what your parents and your peers have said is important. You've won. And yet there's something very deeply wrong with this kind of winning. A few years back, there was a sketch from that TV show, Portlandia, where these people said in order to make something special, all you need to do was put a bird on it. Whether it was a sticker or a cross stitch or whatever, putting a bird on something certified it as quirky and fun and therefore very desirable. In the same way, the problem with all of this is that we have slapped a Jesus sticker on everything in our lives and called it a day. We've spoken holy-sounding phrases like, I'll pray for you, and Jesus knows, and raised our hands while singing, and maybe gone on short-term mission trips, and then congratulated ourselves on Christianity well done. But I'm tired of those empty phrases. I'm tired of putting a Jesus on it. Because once you lead a life that is in its goals and outcomes indistinguishable from any other yuppie, you pretty much are just another yuppie. But even worse, you think you can have your cake and eat it too. You've got all your bases covered because you've put up the Jesus statue and you pray to it. Not in a faith-filled way, but as a mascot for your perfect life now. Now, I don't necessarily have trouble with comfortable Christians or comfortable Chinese Canadians or any combination of comfort, Christianity, and Chinese Canadian culture. But this particular mixture of comfort and security seeking and then finding it isn't good. When you get everything you want, you tend to stop engaging with tensions and ambiguities in the name of keeping life simple and reducing your cognitive and spiritual load. This leads, damningly, to a lack of curiosity about almost everything. And the problem with a lack of curiosity is that you stop growing. You stop trying new things. You stop reaching out to others. And without this reaching out, without constant growth, you become stagnant. And it's in your stagnancy that you then reach out, hoping a therapist like me can help you find that spark again. But maybe it's not people like me who can help rekindle that spark. Maybe what you really need is to have the courage to imagine a different story, a different narrative. One where we may not get everything we want or what our families and culture have wanted for us. But maybe a life story where we are enlivened by hopeful adventure. My name is Ed Ng. Thank you for listening to the Eastgate Project Podcast.